Welcome to Innovators Inside, the podcast for people working in corporate innovation, brought to you by Alchemist X, the corporate services division of Alchemist Accelerator. Here, you'll follow host Rachel Chalmers, head of Alchemist X, as she talks to the industry's highest achievers and most compelling thought leaders. These are fly-on-the-wall conversations with leading practitioners in the field. They'll share their lessons learned so that you don't have to go through the painful experiences that they did. So sit back, relax, and get ready to level up. Today, I am honored and personally delighted to welcome Sam Ramji. Sam is currently the Chief Strategy Officer for Datastax. In his 25-year Silicon Valley career, he's been instrumental in creating $2 billion markets. The enterprise service bus during his time at, at BEA Systems and API management when he was at Apogee. Sam and I first met when he was laying the foundation for open source at Microsoft back in the aughts, when to do this was next to unthinkable. Now, of course, Microsoft owns GitHub and is a titanic thought leader in free software thanks in no small part to Sam's work. He's also done time at Google and Autodesk and is a prolific advisor to everyone from early stage startups to massive enterprises. He has a degree in cognitive science from UC San Diego and still plays around with machine learning and AI just for fun. Sam, welcome to the show. Rachel, thank you so much. When you started leading the Linux and open source efforts at Microsoft, Steve Ballmer was still calling the GPL a cancer. What was it like to work at a company undergoing such massive transformations in environment and culture? How did you steer Microsoft towards survival? It was super intense in a great way, actually. Many times we would reference the feeling of the West Wing, uh, the Aaron Sorkin show, where we would just feel like the world depended on our excellent work and our ability to convince Microsoft coherently, qualitatively, quantitatively, pragmatically, that open source was here to stay and that Microsoft would be a much better company if it embraced open source in the fullest sense. It must have been hard, though, to, to keep the focus on that. You know, the pushback within the company was apparent even to me. I was an analyst at the time, and, and it was really clear that many, many of, of the top-ranking executives were almost personally offended by the idea of free software and, and of programmers not being compensated for their work. So that they were coming from a genuine place, but they couldn't make the switch to understanding that that open source developers were trying to build a commons of, of infrastructure. It was almost constitutionally offensive to them, right? Because when you go back to the original Bill Gates memo to software hobbyists back in the mid 70s. Not the Halloween memo, the, the, the um, homebrew club. Yes, the, of course. The, yeah, yeah. So the, the, way back in the day, you know, pointed out that like you can't expect people to write good quality software without getting paid because we have to pay our own bills. Uh, so that's really what you we're dealing with in terms of a current uh, at Microsoft. Interestingly, the Halloween documents then led to the Department of Justice antitrust investigations, which led to the consent decree. And in no small way, there's a link between the consent decree and the funding that created the opportunity for me to do what I was able to do at Microsoft. So kind of goes back to uh, that far, right, with Jim Alshin and others being asked, why did they make it so hard to integrate with Windows? And, and this is where the language around cutting off Netscape's air supply came from, this very, very aggressive internal language about the browser wars. And so what happened was that was misconstrued to also apply to an intentional nefariousness in every single thing Microsoft did. So the browser wars were over the top, right? That's HTTP. It's coming over the public internet. But what got deeper into the consent decree and then the European Commission 
commission statement of objections, uh, the SO was actually had everything to do with Samba. So it was the server side connection, server to server. How do you do Windows identity? How do you look at file systems? How do you look at users? How do all those things connect? So that created a space for us to start working on open source. So I kind of came to Microsoft in an odd way, very pragmatically joined their venture capital group in 2004. And their organization was, hey, how do we get startups to use more Microsoft software or any? And I went to a software as a service conference in maybe March or April of 2005. And in eight hours, they only mentioned Microsoft technologies twice for a couple seconds each. They said, oh, and we also use SQL Server. So it was kind of a shocking wake-up call for me to say, hey, if you don't change fundamentally, you're going to lose this entire space of SaaS startups. That became the BizSpark program. I wrote a 10-page strategy paper. I worked with uh, an open-source consulting organization led by Andrew Aitken, uh, mm-hmm. which was pretty pretty excellent. And that, that strategy document made it all the way up to corporates, uh, went into corporate strategy, and it went to a particular person named Bill Hilf. Now, Bill, he is now the CEO of Vulcan, which is uh, Paul Allen's endowment and you know, sort of global trust. Bill had been hired in 2004 from IBM as Microsoft's Linux person. <laughs> he actually understood Linux and he had the courage right, and the constitutional fortitude to, as a basis of this job, I'm going to demo Linux and open source technology to Bill Gates himself. I'm going to show you that this stuff really works, that it's really real, and that you need to pay attention. And so that began a string of unbroken hits of quarterly Bill G demos that he and then my team did for going on six years, uh, a record that I think I can be confident in saying it will never be broken. So we showed Bill all this stuff from SE Linux all the way to the last demo I did after Bill had retired to Rayazi was all about open source cloud and how you could do live migration using Open Nebula. We showed AppScaler. Uh, we showed a range of things that my team of Linux generalists put together in two weeks with no specialist knowledge. And that was the kind of technical core that we used both to drive some fear into Microsoft product organizations as well as some enlightenment. So we could show everyone who cared about it, that there's real stuff here that you can't just dismiss. And if you're going to compete with it, good luck. But if you want to work with it, then you might have a really good opportunity. So that was kind of the the general drive that we took over those years. And I was blessed by Bill's insight to create a group that was worldwide. I had uh, 80 people in 80 countries, 40 people in corporate, so a good 120-person team. And we owned a corporate scorecard item. So you know, you talk about corporate innovation. How do you do it? Well, you have to measure it. So Microsoft is a balanced scorecard company. We had 33 scorecard items. And these directly drove corporate vice president compensation. And every regional vice president in the field was a corporate vice president. So you were going to get paid differently based on whether you attained the right results on the scorecard. I owned the Linux versus Windows market share scorecard. And so that created consequences for field organizations and product teams if they weren't doing the right things. So based on that, we were able to have a place to stand. We were included in all the big corporate reviews, all of the annual planning cycles. We were able to run plays in the field. And with an 80-person field team and a 40-person corporate team, the Linux and open source organization that I led had uh, the the brains, the hearts, uh, the arms and legs, the ability to think new thoughts, to be able to communicate uh, these thoughts, and then to be able to take action. And we did that on a consistent cadence. So that was how we were able to support Microsoft corporate innovation to move off of its old models of being extremely open source hostile to understanding how open source could work really well for their business. So kind of from open source apostasy to open source apotheosis. 
Right. And one of the big pieces of pushback we heard over and over again was that open source had not yielded a billion dollar business other than Red Hat at that point. But of course, right then in the mid aughts was when the big open source businesses started to appear and they didn't look like Red Hat. They were Facebook and Google and, and Amazon Web Services. People were building on top of these huge open source stacks and building SaaS services that were proprietary, but depended entirely on the work of open source developers. That was a moment at which everyone's perception started to shift, I think, and you were instrumental in that. Yeah, that's super well said. And if you wanted to get the cloud workloads that we're going to make Azure successful, you were going to have to lose your religion and realize that all workloads are created equal and you want all of them. So that was a huge driver in shifting the Azure strategy. But the most foundational element of Microsoft is that they are a platform, so they make money only when somebody's running something useful on top of it. So that was really what let us change the Microsoft orientation. Like if you want more web market share, right? More web workload market share. If you want IIS, Internet Information Services, to be a better competitor to Apache, then you need to look at what people love about Apache, which was most notably PHP. So we tied all of that conceptualization together and said, let's rebuild PHP for Windows. Like we found out that they were still 32-bit binaries and the people had lost the compiler and the last time it had been built for Windows was 1999. So a lot of low-hanging fruit to make PHP amazing on Windows. Then we followed that up with a gold sponsorship of the Apache Software Foundation. And then we followed that up with a worldwide PHP on IIS campaign. So that's the kind of thing that Microsoft couldn't have done before. And what we tried to teach the organization is you can have insight, you can understand the technology, you can build a technology integration, make Windows a better destination, and then you can communicate about it in a way that you can be open-handed and you can be heard. And that can drive market share. So I think that was something that was a pretty extraordinary end-to-end -end project that we ran. And Bill Staples, who was my product group partner, is now the chief product officer at New Relic. So you kind of look at the ways that we've had to think about large-scale corporate innovation, meeting communities where they are, learning about technology evolution, and somehow blending that into the particular cocktail that works for one company or another. That's kind of the lifeblood, I think, of the kind of strategic work that makes me excited. That's really interesting because now that I think about it, New Relic arrived on the seen as tool for developers that afforded them the same kinds of convenience and immediate insight that people expected from Microsoft software. So it brought that customer centricity into the developer realm. And it was really a revelation to a, a lot of developers when it started to appear. And that was a really interesting point as well, because now we're in the early teens. Satya Nadella is about to become the CEO of Microsoft, thanks to all of the groundwork that, that you and Andrew and, and your team laid. I was involved in the open source community at this point, and we were still very skeptical whenever the enthusiastic, bright-eyed Microsoft people turned up. But but Sacha's appointment was really the crossing the Rubicon point where we were like, yeah, the the forces of open source have have decisively won here. Yeah, and it was interesting. We we had to build the infrastructure, right? We had to build the spinal column to enable all of that activity to take place. So one of the most interesting meetings I've ever been in my life was uh, June twentieth, two thousand eight. It was a week before Bill retired, and one of the things that he specified that we were absolutely going to get solved was fundamentally changing the rules of how Microsoft engineers could work with open source. Because until then, there was this concept that if it was open source code, the engineer would have some residual knowledge and that could create an IP infringement on Microsoft software. So they actually used a term that is not technical and it's quite scary. They called it taint. You could become <laughs> a tainted engineer and then it would be N years before you could work on Microsoft software, which is like career suicide for a Microsoft yeah. engineer. So we were able to completely change that by working collectively with Horacio 
Gutierrez, who is now the general counsel at Spotify. So he was the head of intellectual property and licensing. Worked with that team, worked with other open source product needs and my organization. And we sat down with Bill, with Brad Smith, who's a Microsoft president, with Steve Ballmer, with Craig Mundy, and a few other members of the project team, I think, including David Kafer. Ray Ozzy was there as well. And the presentation was we had done nine months of work to prove comprehensively that working with MIT and Apache licenses should be green-lighted. And it was essential for Microsoft to be able to change its approach and put any engineers to work on those kinds of projects. And that would allow us to put our shoulder to the wheel, become a more effective company. And there was a direct link between that and our ability to participate in Apache Cupid and help uh, AMQP. So that was a, a seminal moment. Balmer and Mundy were so hostile in that meeting. And Bill actually had to stand up in the middle of the meeting and say some pretty strong language to them and then went up and wrote on a whiteboard how everything would work and why it was a good thing for Microsoft and did not increase the company's risk. Uh, so that in constitutional right offense that Steve, I think, carried deeply in his body made it extremely difficult for him to understand how open source worked and why it would work. And in fact, many years later, after he had left and he was the head of the Clippers, my dear friend Bill Hilf was sitting with him uh, in the crowd chatting. Steve was talking about how he had discovered this amazing source of data about how U.S. government funding gets acquired and how it's spent and you know the gap between that and the social contract we're in. And he was just going to share all that data out so other people could look at it as well. And Bill goes, huh, Steve, you're kind of taking an open source approach to this. And Steve's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I thought that was pretty darn funny. How dare you? <laughs> and, you know, if you told me 30 years ago that I would be anxiously awaiting the next post to Bill Gates's blog so that I would know what he'd been reading over the summer, I, I would have had you put away. But one thing that I, I really admire about Bill Gates is that he, he did completely change his mind. He did a 180 on this and he's shown that ability to coolly assess the evidence and decide that he was wrong and he needs to change his approach many, many times over the course of his career. Yeah, Bill doesn't get enough credit as an outstanding listener, right? He really sits and listens closely and he is able to put his total focus on whatever's happening and listen to everything on multiple levels, not ask a single question until you're done. That could be five minutes, it could be 45 minutes. And then he will open up with an encyclopedic array of really on point questions to fill out the rest of the space of the knowledge. So I think every every time I got to prepare for a Bill Gates demo, which you know my team would typically put about 400 hours into prepping for a half hour Bill Gates demo, I'd put in about 50 hours of my time to make sure that we never wasted bills. He understood open source extremely well and was not really in the public eye for that at all in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009. I think the PR organization, again, speaking of corporate innovation, couldn't figure out how that would foot with their stories. But he didn't get the credit in the public for how well he really understood both the intellectual property structure, why it worked, why the technologies were important. And he used my team extremely strategically. So for example, we'd show him demos on how fast Linux could boot. And so then he would make sure that the head of Windows was at the demo, right? So they would have to deal with the fact that open source was moving really quickly. And then Bill Gates would say like, well, why can't you do that? So he would use us as a, as a very thoughtful sort of you know club or prod to get the innovation he wanted to see out of Microsoft Corporation. So effectively, we were kind of the, the black sheep squadron, right? We were flying for the opposition to show his own teams where the gaps were in their, in their thinking and that their, in their velocity. So I think that was a really good move on his part to create and empower a team like ours and then to use it the way that he did. Because it's so easy in corporations, when you've been there for a long time, when you're super senior, people want to wrap you in cotton wool and tell you what is safe for them for you to know. 
And he managed to continue to find a way to undo that and get new sources of, of, of information and cause the innovation that he needed to see in the company. When you look back on your work, and I guess in particular, this turnaround at Microsoft, can you pinpoint one or two things that you're proudest of? Sure. I think there were, there were three moments that really stand out. Um, one was just deeply personal. I'm an introvert. I have a lot of social anxiety. And early on, I found out that the Samba community was very, very angry with us. But it became pretty clear to me intellectually that what I needed to do was to go out and understand them and make peace and be direct and honest and figure out what could be done. So I flew out to Göttingen, Germany, to the Samba XP conference, where I was kind of a stranger in a strange land. I learned a lot. People were curious about me. Some were quite kind to me. I wrote like a, whatever, 20-page paper on the flight on the way home from Germany. But that was, the, that was a breakthrough for me in kind of pushing through personal barriers to go and just purely listen. And the orientation I had for the writing on the way home, having come through the experience, was I pulled on my college experiences in cognitive science, studying anthropology, and I wrote an ethnography, right? So the whole thing, I wrote it as true as I could to the worldview that I had picked up from the Samba community. And then I used that as the basis for understanding them, understanding Microsoft, and trying to figure out how we could bridge the two. That put me in a really good position for the second thing that I'm really proud of, which is that we created lemonade from lemons, right? Everybody was freaking out about the Novell Microsoft deal about Linux. I couldn't change that the deal was going to happen and I couldn't change people's reaction. But what we could do is we could take the enormous amount of money that had been allocated to the deal and build out a full-fledged interoperability lab for Linux and Windows. So I got to work with uh, Nat Friedman a little bit, with Miguel Diacaza a lot, and we built out the machines and the software and we put the teams together to make sure that you wouldn't ship Windows unless it had proved compatible compatibility with Samba, and that we had a reference implementation for the protocols that allowed that connectivity from operating system to operating system. So that was a moment in time that we were able to take everything that we learned and make the world safer for Linux. And then the third thing is another Linux contribution. Uh, we contributed under the GPL to Linux 2.6.32 a range of drivers that we had built. And that was all spearheaded by uh, an amazing principal engineer who worked for me by the name of Hank Jansen, or Janssen, as he should be pronounced. Realizing that the work we were doing to virtualize Linux on top of Hyper-V, which was some of the work that we were doing uh, as a result of the Novell Lab, really would be much better suited to the market if it were part of the Linux kernel drivers project. So we figured out, if you can imagine, this is kind of all in this ongoing momentum we had from the, the Bill Gates and uh, Brad Smith review, where we changed the rules for how we contributed. Even after that, despite Apache and MIT being green-lighted, GPL was red-lighted. So I think there was a combination of like, all right, let's knock that one out too. So while we were building the code, in parallel, we were running through legal the ability to release it under the GPL v2. We got it done, and I think this was August of 2009. It was one of the very last things that, that the team did while I was still at Microsoft. And I felt like that was pretty much of a crowning achievement of both technology, right? It worked really, really well. Uh, it basically hooked Libvirt and it made Linux think it was running on Linux when it was really running on Hyper-V. It was a pretty cool community achievement because we worked with Linux kernel contributors to make sure that it was done correctly. And it was a really good market achievement because what it meant was we grabbed a lot of attention. People were like, oh my gosh, you know, pigs are flying. Microsoft has contributed to the Linux kernel. This is, this is absolutely wild. But fundamentally, it meant that we could run Linux workloads on our cloud. So all of the different things that I've mentioned before came through as elements in a complete strategy. We're going to create a completely coherent, contained end-to-end -end strategy 
to serve Microsoft's business interest by doing the right thing and by doing the right thing in the right way. So that was pretty awesome. And it was it was really received as a, an epochal moment in the, the open source community. I was close to Zen Server at the time and Andrew Morton, who who supervises the, the Linux patches because he's an Australian, he's an old friend and came to our wedding, of course. But I remember Andrew and, and my Zen Server friend saying to me, Microsoft released these patches and they're really good. And the astonishment from the open source devs was, was palpable. Turns out we had really good engineers, but particularly I want to call attention to Hank Young. So Hank worked on Unix and he, he did the multi-threading code for System 5, uh, uh, Release 5. It was 1994, I think, when he put the multi-threading code in there. He worked with Kerning and, and Ritchie uh, when he was at Bell Labs, right? He came out of the AT&T Unix mother load. So, you know, incredibly competent. And it was, uh, it was an amazing day in my career when I was able to recruit him to Microsoft because he was very much like I was previously an anything but Microsoft kind of person. Uh, but the deep care and competency that Hank brought to all of his work really showed up in that uh, in that contribution. And I think it changed the game for Microsoft. I think it's now a fifth of all of the Azure workloads are running Linux. And you can draw a direct line between that success and uh, Hank's uh, vision, inspiration, and frankly, perspiration, because he wrote the code. And even three years ago, uh, AWS was still the default choice for early stage startups building on the cloud. Now that calculus is changing and, and Azure has become a real force to be reckoned with. That's the other thing to make sure that you know, we understand in corporate innovation. The Chinese expression, I believe, is you know the, the nail that stands up will be pounded down. And that's totally true. So I, I had these funny conversations where people were like, oh, you must be the loneliest person in Redmond. Far from it, right? As the Linux an open source person, there were so many people in Microsoft who just wanted to do the right thing, wanted to create an open source foundation, wanted to open source parts of Windows, wanted to embrace more of it. So these folks were all across the company. So there was a collective community that, you know, it wasn't super carefully organized like communities generally are not, but there was a movement and there were a few of us who ended up being lightning rods for moments in time. But all of that just built to the community that's there today, right? So that community obviously has strengthened and with Sacha's ascendant They've come strongly out of the woodwork and they've changed from the old normal of anything but open source to the new normal of, of course, we're going to start with open source. Clearly, Microsoft's transformation was decades in the making. Do you think this is part of what makes you such an optimist? Because you really are. Do you think having done that work and seen it bearing fruit so many years later is what gets you up in the morning now? Boy, you know, I, I'm certainly an optimist and I'm a pragmatist. And that was what let me leave Microsoft feeling really good, right? I left Microsoft to go to join a close friend of mine, Chad Kapoor, who was building a new company called Sonoa. And it eventually became Apogee. Long story short, we took it public and then it was acquired off the public markets by Google. But as early as 2009, as I came through learning about Red Dog and demonstrating open source to Rayazi and Red Dog team, that's what Azure was called before it was Azure, and showing it to Bob Muglia, I could see that the changes were in place that Microsoft would figure out how to do open source, if only because of the cloud and its need for the workload. So I tend to see over long horizons. And once something is a solved problem in my head, even if it's not really solved in the world, I'm kind of satisfied, right? I'm kind of done. I know it's going to turn out a certain way. And I thought it would take about five years. And when I left in 2009, I said in 2014, it's going to become really public that Microsoft loves open source. Well, behold, MS Build in San Francisco 2014, they launched all of the Azure pre-built open source applications, right? Third-party applications that are actually popular rather than like new fake ones. So some things just become really obvious to me once I stick my head in 
understand them for long enough, I try to understand the physics of the space. And um, if you call that optimism, I guess maybe it's uh, you know excessive confidence in the power of intellect. But <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to uh, I tend to think that a little bit like being patient, right? Whether you're patient or not doesn't change the results. It just changes how much suffering you're going to experience. So the choice between optimism and pessimism is the same. I think optimists suffer a lot less. If you had a do-over, what might you have done differently? At Microsoft. Anywhere in your career. You get a mulligan. You get to have another go. A career mulligan. What an interesting thought. I'm not a person who lives with a lot of regrets. Not sure that I have any particular do-overs. Because everything, you know, I was fired from my job as director of engineering at Ophoto about two months after we were acquired by Kodak. And so I went from the person who was doing the behind the scenes work to get the Kodak acquisition to happen in 2001. And with executives saying, oh my gosh, this is amazing work. You should get a percentage of the acquisition over and above, you know, whatever stock you have, because this is so amazing, right? Our bacon has been saved to like, oh my gosh, you're a terrible communicator, right? You're putting us at risk. Like uh, you can't stay in your job, which obviously neither of the two things were true. Yes, I, I did a lot of work, but you know, the company had been around for a while to be able to hold the promises and attract Kodak's attention. And it wasn't true that I was a terrible communicator and shouldn't be in my job, but that's just how things go. But I spent like six months after I left Ophoto coming through September 11th, the September 11th, the job market dried up. It was a super hard time, but that hard time led me to ask really fundamental questions, which is why am I still in engineering when the people who are in charge might not even know what they're doing? I need to go figure out what's outside of engineering. It's kind of like if I hadn't had that experience, a, I'd probably have less empathy with people who get fired, but B, I would probably have stuck with engineering all along and I wouldn't have had the opportunity to work at Microsoft or do any of these things. So I realize that's, again, sort of an optimistic philosophy, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, get knocked down nine times, get up 10. You're so much stronger the 10th time you got up. And can you regret any of the nine times you got knocked down? I really can't. What do you think makes corporate innovation in particular so difficult? This is a great question. I've thought about this a lot, especially since getting an opportunity to work with you so closely at Autodesk, which was one of the great, great parts of the last decade for me. You know, coming from highly innovative cultures and then landing in a very old, slow-moving company led me to realize that a lot of people are not just status quo folk, because status quo is easier to maintain, but a lot of corporate organizations have all these complex cultural rules that nobody quite understands, nobody ever actually developed, but they're encoded in everyone's behavior. So a little bit like that nail that sticks up gets hammered down. If you want to stay tenured in an old company, you don't rock the boat. And that is the antithesis of innovation. You don't bring up scary ideas. You know, you don't know how they're going to be taken. So one of the things that I started to understand was uh, network math, right? I was trying to figure out the math behind my social anxiety, right? Why do I do so well in one-on-one -on -one situations? Uh, and why are much bigger situations difficult for me? And it turns out one-on-one, -on -one, two people have one relationship. But the relationship math scales up really fast. With three people, there are four relationships. With four people, there are 10 relationships, right? It's an additive factorial of the different ways that those groups can be combined. So now we're just up to four people. We've got 10 relationships. Now take a 10,000 person company. Not to say that every single person's in a relationship, but what is the network math of the character, the fabric, the beliefs, the implicit behaviors, what's rewarded in all of those? So as that, as that number gets embarrassingly large, you can start to imagine the actual inertia behind change if you don't have a change-oriented culture to start with. 
So I do tend to think that there are innovative pockets in large corporations and there are entire innovative corporations. But if you haven't built innovation into your culture, fundamentally, it's very difficult to bolt it on or add it in because despite their very best intentions and their and people's ability to say, yes, absolutely, I'm doing the new innovative thing, 99% of the time, they are using new words to talk about the old thing. They're not actually going through a process of, of innovating, changing their orientation and figuring out a way to do things fundamentally different or not at all. Because sometimes what's required for innovation is a vast brush fire that wipes out all of the stuff that's just kind of started to accumulate that you have to do every day that gets in the way of being able to do anything new. And we have this tendency, particularly now in California, to think of, of wildfires as intrinsically destructive. But what we're glossing over is a 10,000-year history of fire farming on the part of the indigenous people and an ecosystem that has evolved for fire. I've been finding that idea of regenerative fire a good touchstone for the work that I'm doing in corporate innovation now. Yeah, absolutely. And what are the things that you care about? Like all of the scrubby huckleberry oaks and blackberries, right? Or do you care about the pine trees and the spotted owls? If you care about spotted owls and pine trees, you are pro-brush fires. Right. You can't hold those two ideas the same because when you knock that out, the spotted owls have an easier time hunting, uh, you know, for voles and mice on this open forest floor and the pine trees are less competed with. So they've got more ability to stand taller, sequester more carbon. There's a lot more carbon sequestration that happens in these uh, larger, older growth trees. So there's all sorts of good reasons to to burn out the, the bushes that just kind of get in your way. But you can start to believe that it's everything that matters to you because it's taken up 95% of your working hours. Just to take this this analogy a little bit further, we fetishize this idea of wilderness as something untouched by humans. But in fact, humans are part of the environment and there's a positive interaction that we can have with it that is probably a, a, as decent a, a definition of innovation as we're going to have. Absolutely. How would you distill all of this experience into, say, two or three lessons for our listeners? The Archimedes principle is the most important one if you're going to create large-scale innovation in your company. So what is your lever and where are you you going to stand. If where you're standing isn't related to revenue, things that the management chain cares about, things that might impact something that the board of directors or the public market cares about, then you're probably wasting your time. And if your lever doesn't include technology and community and an ability to deliver that innovation to your customers, again, you're wasting your time. To turn that upside down, focus on something that is close to the core of what the business is, because by definition, businesses have to care about that, and make sure that you have the social and political connection to the people who are fundamentally responsible for delivering those results. Ask yourself, what is being measured? You will end up finding one metric and simplicity is strength that you believe you can move. That's your place to stand. Now, figure out how the technology and the community and the customer value will be your lever so that you can move it. That's a major thing that I would offer is to use the Archimedes principle. It's um, it's powerful. It's, it's customer development on the grand scale. It's understanding how an entire customer base needs a company to evolve such that it continues to be relevant in the future. Yes. And so was the corollary there is there's a, a wonderful book I read uh, maybe eight years ago by John Hagel and a few others who were writing a book called The Power of Pull. And so what they were looking at was to reimagine the corporate hierarchy from a top-down pyramid to concentric circles. And they place the customer outside of the last concentric circle and say that that is the edge. 
And a really strong company these days is not focused on push. How do you push your intent out to the world? But it's focused on pull. And so then the most important and valuable people for innovation in the company are not the ones who are closest to the center, who know exactly how to run the old business. They're the ones closest to the edge, listening to weak signals from the customers about what the customers want from you that aren't yet fulfilled. And they called those marginal behaviors and marginal requests. And the point that they made was that the great transformations of companies and societies have generally come from marginal communities, literally meaning on the margin between the edge of the organization and the world outside. Often not real well understood, often not real well championed or explained, but that is where you can find your next business model. So when I link that back to what you and I did together at Autodesk, we had an enormous number of the world's buildings. Over 50% of buildings are designed in Autodesk software. There's lots of different building information models and records. Great. So we know what the buildings are. But if you're at the edge and you're listening to the construction Instructors of the buildings, you're saying, you know, I need you to answer different questions for me. Is the project on time? Where are the risks in the building I'm building? How can you help me understand all of that through data? How can you pull that out to me? Those kinds of marginal conversations then end up creating transformation. If they're properly listened to, properly curated, and you've got a curious leadership team that is seeking truth outside the company. If you couple the Archimedes principle with the power of pull, you end up in a pretty strong place, not just to figure out where to be and how to do it, but what to do, listening to those marginal voices. That's a, a really fascinating framework for thinking about. I mean, there's a lot to criticize about Google and Facebook, but when you think about the ways in which they and Amazon have been extremely effective, it's in empowering small groups of engineers to listen and act. Uh, and that has given them a way to insource outsourced innovation. So where Sun would throw off these misfit bands of engineers who would build a company that would then be reacquired by Sun, Facebook and Google managed to keep that activity happening internally. And I think it is because they have these circles and, and they pay attention to these weak signals from the customer base. And there's no reason to say that Sun's model is worse than Google or Google's model is better than Sun. The question is, is the innovation happening, right? Cisco has a sim similar model. One of the interesting things about about throwing off engineers, whether you spin it out intentionally or whether they, they quit out of frustration and inspiration. While they're outside the company, they're gathering new signals and they are de-risking the innovation that they're doing. Like, let's be real, 98, 99% of innovations fail. Just because you invented something doesn't mean anybody cares about it. So de-risking it and then being able to say, oh, you know, now that's something worth $250 million. Let's hire those 10 people back. On the one hand, you'll get the pushback inside the company going, that's outrageous. But on the other hand, look at all the other things that failed, that didn't work, that you didn't have to pay for. So effectively, you're reaping the rewards of having good relationship with your ex-employees and figuring out how to pull those folks back in because they understand both the innovation culture, they understand the market, and they understand your source culture. So they're more likely to be able to have something that sticks. Facebook and Google can do that internally because they have such an extraordinarily profitable business model then they could just ignore an enormous amount of waste, right? The vast majority of their employees do not produce revenue for those companies. So all of that in-sourced innovation is actually driven by these platform business models that are throwing off uh, astonishing margins. And not to toot Alchemist's horn, but you did set it up for me. One of the things that I'm proudest of this little accelerator for achieving is uh, taking strategic investment from Cisco and building three companies that Cisco then turned around and reacquired. I think that's a, a real testament to, to the model that Ravi has built. It's huge. And ultimately, Facebook and Google will come crashing to earth. Their margins will start to shrink, and then they will have to adopt more of this pragmatic uh, spin out, spin in, whether that's uh, implicit, people just leaving and forming companies and being reacquired, or whether it's explicit 
and there's actually an intellectual property clearing and spinning out competency. How do you think the pandemic might affect corporations long term? It's informative to see how it's affected them in the short term. Most Global 2000 enterprises that have been surveyed in the last few months have said they have accelerated their digital transformation, which is a, a wide word, right? It incorporates everything from remote work to changing how you provide value to the customer. They've accelerated their digital transformation by anywhere from two years to seven years just in the last six months. So there's two things that I find very interesting there. One is when you digitize, you reduce the cost of innovation. The more data that's available to you, the more simulations you can run, the more what-if scenarios you can have, the more you can bring people together around a new idea of the future. Hey, what if we did this? When I crunch this enormous amount of data that we now have because we've digitized, I think our results might look like this in three years. So your ability to tell a story has everything to do with your ability to create that new reality. I think the other thing is, why didn't they accelerate themselves two years ago? Well, it's the brush fire problem, right? So COVID has been this brush fire that has cleared things out. And for people who are stuck in the old normal, they're in the new abnormal, they might look at this time and say, oh my gosh, we really can move fast. What was it that led us to move slowly in the past? And perhaps some of these companies will end up inoculating themselves against some of the historical anti-innovation forces. Now that they have ground truth, they have lived experience that you can go fast and you don't have to have a meeting with 16 people, 14 of whom are there to shoot the idea down. You can instead say, hey, on the digital foundation we've built, we can fail fast. And hey, if we fail five times, you can turn off the project. And by the way, we're shipping every two weeks. So it's only going to be a 10-week cycle. So you can fit this all neatly within a quarter. And now you can be within the cadence clockwork that corporations run on. So I think there may be actually be an uptick in the innovation cadence for the companies that have survived through this. Clearly, like any brush fire, there's going to be a lot of death and a lot of companies will disappear. So it's not about the old normal. It's not about the new abnormal. It's about what's the next normal going to be. And we have much younger people coming to bear. This is their World War experience, right? The COVID-19 is the defining experience for uh, for people in their 20s, for sure, for all of us. When you think about people who are younger, more plastic, their orientation for our ethics, how we support and serve others, the basic expectations about the rate of innovation they get from apps on mobile phones, what their web experiences are, all of these things are going to come together into the, the cocktail of the next normal. And I think there'll be a lot less patience for, you know, frankly, crusty hierarchical folks sitting around using their experience to stop new things from happening and instead adopting a model where you know move fast and change things is going to be the birth of a lot of new value and the way that we think about business will be will be fundamentally different just because the only ones who survive will have adopted this new style of play and that will be what we call business five years from now and it's another realm where your comment about change coming from the margins is is so pertinent because anyone who had been listening to disability activists, let alone public health folks three years ago, is is way more prepared for the changes that are coming than people who, who disregarded those voices. Absolutely. Sam, how do you avoid burnout? I take vacations. I have really good hobbies. I live with my best friend, which is super helpful. We've been married for almost 24 years. I meditate every day for 20 minutes to 60 minutes. It just depends on what's happening. 
Um, I have a gratitude practice. I think I think being grateful every day, you know, to one or more people or things in your life is uh, is really important. And it's important for me to start my day off there. It's almost like rebooting a computer, right? Start the day, you know, clean in a positive mood with your thoughts about you. I also create a lot of space for creativity outside of my job, um, and I give myself permission to stop working, especially in the COVID era. I think it's really important to stop working about five p.m. or certainly no later than six, and then I do some creative writing. I still play Dungeons and dragons i play guitar right i write original music with uh with a close friend of mine and i think to be human is to be creative and don't let anybody tell you oh you're an accountant oh you're an engineer right you can't be creative it is fundamentally a creative existence that all of us are are meant to live so if we create space for creativity outside of the nine to five and you know the imaginary walls of our work i think it's a lot easier to fight burnout and then i just pay attention to when do i really need to take vacation and i give myself the permission to do that and when i'm on vacation i am on vacation the thing that we have to acknowledge in corporate life is that we are athletes. And there's a great essay called The Corporate Athlete. It's by Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz, who created the, the discipline around the power of full engagement. And one of the things that they identified was that, you know, unlike an Olympic athlete who's going to have a four to 10 year career and is practicing 95 to 98% of the time is performing two to 5% of the time. Somebody in a corporate environment is going to work for 40 years and we're expected to perform 95 to 98% of the time. And we're only supposed to train two to 5% of the time. So it's an inversion of athleticism that is a recipe for exhaustion, right? You can't sprint a marathon. So I highly recommend their work. They really focused on not what you're doing, but what you're not doing. So the fundamental question they ask is, what are your practices for renewal? Everybody gets renewal a different way. You need to figure out what yours are and give yourself the permission to do that. And I think that's a, a real key for avoiding burnout, because if you don't have those, you are burned out. You just don't know it. And your normal is like this terrible feeling that you have. So if you don't have a place to escape, you won't know how you're supposed to be. If you were God Emperor and could dictate the next 10 years of the software industry and the outcome in 10 years was exactly the software industry that you'd like to see, what would it look like? I think 10 years from now is a place for me as an infrastructure nerd that I really like to think of fully automated and augmentation of intelligence. So we should be in a place where we're generally using open source and open standards. We're paying people for their expertise and we're paying companies for their ease of use taking all of the different abundances that we have of different types of technologies, sometimes multiple things for the same problem, sometimes very closely related things that have to be integrated together, we would be paying for operational simplicity because that's what lets companies move really, really fast forward. I think data would be standardized. We would have seen the completion of the Kubernetes replatforming wave, which standardizing how we do compute would have created an environment for standardizing how we do data. And the next step beyond that, once you can take compute and data for granted, then you can create a lot more augmented intelligences, things that are doing a lot of automated work, maybe letting us see complex multidimensional problems in a way that we can fit into our human brains so that we can make decisions, we can be creative, and we'll be seeing a lot more small ephemeral programs that spin up and exist really only to help a person make a better decision, uh, make a better connection, reach out to someone else. So I think the more that we give things away, the more that we can figure out how they work together, and the more that will end up coming back to us in sort of creative surpluses. That sounds really great. What about the future for you personally? What are your plans for the next few years? So I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on data on Kubernetes. I had an amazing opportunity in 2016 to join Google from my position as CEO of Cloud Foundry. 
they were working to create an open cloud and they wanted me to come in and run the Kubernetes business. That all started with Craig McLucky talking with Brian Stevens to say Sam would be a good person to come in and, and lead Kubernetes for us. That was the beginning of an extraordinary journey where I got to learn a lot, meet a lot of extraordinary people, including folks I've talked about with you before and who you've met, like Eric Brewer and Melody McFessel, a number of other amazing people. But the thoughts that stick in my head are all about the need to make data easier. So with Kubernetes, solving for how you build out applications, how you handle stateless environments, how you scale out, even how you manage the abundance, because as you have an abundance of new services and new service nodes, you have a scarcity of insight. Oh my gosh, how do these all relate together? So you create a service mesh. And with the service mesh, now you understand your services. But what's unsolved is that data is really, really hard. And every pod, every microservice team has kind of done it a little bit differently. And that creates sprawl. And that's a mess. So I think we have a really special opportunity to move beyond microservices 1.0 into microservices 2.0 by using Kubernetes as the lever to drive change in how we use data. And the way that we can fix data is to create a coherent plane where just like the Kubernetes API is declarative and tells infrastructure what to do, we can have a data for Kubernetes API that lets you look at the security, the storage, the replication, the restoration, the backup, the quality of service, a range of different affordances that lets many different data technologies and storage technologies work together to be orchestrated automatically by Kubernetes. So if we can create an application-aware data environment, we've created the foundation for, I think, the big change we're going through, which is the world's going from app-driven data to data-driven apps. And we have an opportunity to make that a lot easier. I think because of the experiences I've had, the thing that speaks to me most is, is creating data on Kubernetes community and a technical reality and seeing what that revolution has in store for us over the next few years. And so, for example, that might make the problem of tracking and tracing every case of COVID-19 in the UK a lot more straightforward than it is in an Excel spreadsheet. Yes. So many things will get radically easier once the data is fluid. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you or follow your work? I'm semi-active on Twitter. You can find me at sramji, S-R-A-M-J-I. I blog here and there. You can find me uh, at data stacks and around. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Probably terrible at email. My service level objective is only about uh, a week. Uh, and sometimes I don't even hit my SLO, but on Twitter, I'm, I'm fairly quick. Is there anything else I should have asked you that I didn't? The question I would love to answer is, why does AI matter? Because as we look at all of these things, if we look at all of the innovation reports that we have now, uh, the number one transformative technology on most people's minds in large organizations and small is that in the next three to five years, AI is going to be the most transformative force. And so that's easy to write about. People get excited. I have a degree in cognitive science, which means AI and neuroscience. So I think about that a lot. But here's the thing. I don't have a technical answer to this. I have a humanistic answer. The technology is all very, very well covered. Um, you can do smarter, better, faster things. You can do lots of pattern matching. But I think what is going to be extraordinary about AI is that the more that we can automate the things that we used to think were special about being people, we will slowly uncover what is actually special about being people. And I think that's our ability to love. I think it's our ability to create. It's our ability to connect with each other. And so as we keep looking into these almost cognitive prosthetics that we're able to get with Kubernetes and data and cloud computing, a lot of the stuff that we've been confused about, whether that makes us especially human or not, will fall away. That's my optimistic, humanistic uh, perspective on why we should all be excited about the growth of AI over the next 10 years. It's, it's 
really timely for me because I've been um, interacting with a bunch of, of the new bots that have come out this year for various reasons. And um, at first I was struggling because my mental model of a bot is a, a kind of repetitive and slightly dull human. But I had a revelation a couple of weeks ago, which is that in fact what they are is chatty texts, texts in the sense of books. They're books that can answer questions and interact with you. Um, and that really changed the way I feel about engaging with a bot. That is super cool. I always look back to science fiction to tell us what human beings are when you change a few particular constraints. And when I think about great near future science fiction writers, I always come back to Neil Stevenson. And so what you said evoked for me the diamond age or a young lady's illustrated primer, right? What if your books could have conversations with you? My goodness, that would be pretty amazing. That would be pretty amazing. Looking forward to building the Diamond Age with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sam. It's always such a great time talking to you. Thank you so much, Rachel. This has been Alchemist X Innovators Inside. You can find the transcript of this conversation, plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on our blog. And stay connected by following us on Instagram and Twitter. If you found the podcast valuable, feel free to share or tell your colleagues. We love hearing from you. Send us your comments, feedback, suggestions for future guests, or just say hi by emailing us at axii at alchemistaccelerator.com.